0: Podcast. Every fortnight, we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode thirty. Genius. How is it we're all so clever, considering we never do anything to deserve it? Specifically, if a genius is born, a sort of Mozart, and is playing brilliantly at four and composing music, how does all this information get into him or through him? Let's go back to our primary life-form. We'll take a simple single cell, like an amoeba. We know that this cell has certain qualities, The basic one of which we call irritability. Irritability, if we remember, is the capacity of the protoplasm of the living being to respond to a stimulus and to retain the form of the stimulus and of its own response, and to modify its behaviour in accordance with the stimulus and the response. We put an arrow here to represent the stimulus. And the energy of the stimulus going into the protoplasm causes a ripple pattern within the protoplasm. Goes inside to the furthest wall of this mono cell, and then is reflected back. The energy going in, we can call the experience of the stimulus, and the energy going from the walls reflecting back to the stimulus source we can call the reaction and we will notice that this reaction is really the motion of the stimulus gone in and being returned from the walls of this monocell. so in a very peculiar sense the reaction is the action we will tie this up with two different concepts of causation European causation we have said is based on an image rather like billiard balls touching each other in a line the idea being if we take a cue and strike one ball at the end the motion of the cue is transmitted through all the billiard balls and the end one then rolls away and this is a concept of causality where a blow is being struck imparted to a material form by another material form which has been set in motion the word cause that encounters to strike the European concept of causation therefore is a force applied producing a change but in Indian philosophy there is another concept of causality and that is that the effect of a cause is simply the energy of the cause expressing itself The effect is the x fact. The effect is of course vicarious to do. We double the F because there's another letter, the eck. The out fact and the cause is the force. Now let us look at this causality concept. Instead of in a linear sense, like European causation, we look at it in terms of field force. The infinite sentient power of the universe is a field of force. Einstein calls it a unifield because he believes that there is just one field. Uh, in the concepts of the Advaita, the non-dualistic philosophy in India, this concept of monism is inferior to the concept of non-dualism. Einstein's unifield is a field which is considered to be a continuum of force. This field of force demonstrates its creativity by condensing unto centers. In this Einstein theory, Mm -hmm. matter is simply the zone where the lines of force of the field are condensed we take this Indian concept, we have a field, the infinite, the absolute, and in its absoluteness it is beyond all conception. It is the para-brahman, beyond the brahman, which is a worshipable god, because the idea of a god that is worshipped. For suppose a worshipper, and this is a dualistic concept, where the worshipper and the worshipped are separated. But there must be some unifying factor behind the worshipper and the worshipped, and this must be beyond both. This para means beyond, as it does in dots, beyond the opinion. This field of force presses in towards a centre, and in its contraction, in its concentration, it develops an objective world. Remember the word of in object, is the same as the word orb. It means a sphere, a sphere thrown, injected into the field, by the field contracting itself. Now the field, we say, is sentient power. SP, the first two words of spirit. The S is an old grip of a serpent, and the P is a graph of the male positing organ, and therefore the undulating form of absolute motion is represented as a serpent, and the positing of this is when this undulating motion turned upon itself and thus generates a zone circumscribed which can serve as a centre on which one can press. The field then condenses condemns itself to self-objectification. Now in this concept of causality the effect is simply the cause involved. The causal power has willed into a centre and condensed itself and the object in the centre is simply the causal power condensed. So it is not a linear serial concept like the billion balls of western causality It is the concept of creative causality where the creative thing is simply the causal power self-objectified. Now in our diagram of the amoeba we did a circle and we put an arrow outside it to represent the incoming energy which we call the stimulus. The motion of this energy within the confines of the circle representing the cell that motion is the experience of the stimulus. And the reflection of that motion inside the cell, back to the point of stimulus, is what we call the cell reaction. If we now go to this other concept of causality, the Hindu concept, we find that we have a very similar diagram. That is to say, we have a zone that is circumscribed, that's like a monocellular animal, and the forces that are striking upon it the environing forces that constitute the stimuli for that zone are simply field forces of the same order as the being itself I have a basic logical law which says those things can act upon each other which are in some respects alike, things that are totally unlike cannot interact so if there is an amoeba and there is a stimulus situation and these two interact then there must be a fundamental similarity between the stimulus situation and the body receiving the stimulus we can only explain this in one way by seeing this body receiving the stimulus as a function of a field causing a circumscription of a zone within the field and the so called stimulus energy is simply the field function beyond this finite circle. We now see that an individual being, like a mono or like a human being, which is simply a mono-cell with cell walls placed inside it to polarize it, this cell is simply a zone of the field, and outside this zone there is more field, and the whole field is sent in power. So we can write SP inside the circle, we can write SP outside the circle. If we write the IRIT after it, the IR is the same thing as running about. A point running about, and the IT is the same point crucified. When two motions cross each other, and the intersection point of the two, the forces. Mutually stimulate each other and interfere with each other. So that two beings talking to each other can be represented as two arrows, <coughs> two vectored forces crossing each other and interfering with each other. The conversation is mutual interference. Now, when we start with this infinite field of absolute motion, there is a the sentient power that religionists uh, have called spirit. We are talking about something that absolutely is infinite, that is, it is not finite, not limited in any way whatever, and yet, factually, we as finite physical beings exist within it. So we have to account for our own arising, for our own coming to be within a field, and we do this simply by positing that this field has the power to center itself, to contract, to condense in certain power on a point. Now let us say that the infinite field would of itself be represented by nothing whatever. We always use the plain paper to represent this field, but when we come to consider what the field is doing we have to say, let us wave the paper and let us look at the form of the motion of the paper and then we will draw lines upon the paper representing the ripples. Now well, we have to imagine that this paper representing this sentient power is self-moving, self-propagating, S for self and B for propagate. It is self-propagating its motion And it is doing so simultaneously in all directions. The result is we can represent a travelling wave going in any direction whatever. And we can draw any number of these waves propagating through infinite space just as the ripples in a bowl of water can be seen to be travelling in all directions simultaneously within the one bowl of water. Now wherever the forces within this field intersect. They interfere with each other and forces in opposition cause a rotation. Now, when this rotation is considered in its simplest form, we have to say that it is a simple circumscribed zone in which so far no characteristics have been posited. It is simply a plain zone circumcised. It is like a circular white card with no marks upon it. It is the tabula rasa, the plain sheet of the scholastic philosophers. And when we do this, we are actually positing a purely abstract idea. Because there is no circle that is absolutely plain, because this circle itself is within a field of absolute motion now we will draw the motion within the field in light grey lines travelling in all directions and we will see that the motions which are travelling through this circumscribed zone produce within that zone a pattern I have deliberately drawn them light grey because I want to represent this inner zone inside the circumscription line as crisscross with all conceivable directions. Now there is energy of the field passing through the field, and the field is a continuum, therefore every motion of the field passes infinitely in all directions. Within a circumscribed zone, therefore, the motion must also be absolute. That is, it must contain all conceivable directions, whatever. So if we draw two such zones, or three such zones, We have to crisscross these zones with motion patterns, and the motion patterns of each being are identical with all beings. At the level of individual human beings, it means that every human being contains all the constituent motions of all human beings, and at this level, no human being is cleverer than another human being. (coughs) This is the meaning of the statement, in the eyes of God, all men are equal. And yet there's a very peculiar fact that we observe in the time process, that though they are equal essentially in their absolute motion, they are not equal in their function and performance in the time process. And this is what we have to account for. We could say that every circumscribed zone of sentient power contains within its actuality of motion the pattern of all conceivable activities that it can perform. And this pattern is an actual pattern, an actual motion of the field viewed within this zone. How then can we explain that some beings in the time process have different types of humanity? How do these Mozart's and Shakespeare's and things arise if all men are essentially identical? Now, to solve this problem, all we have to do is to notice a peculiar thing. And that is, as soon as we circumscribe a zone, we have brought into being the possibility of contingent relation. That is to say, the perimeters of these two beings can come into contact within the field. The circumscribing line, the integument, the binding membrane of each being, can in fact strike against another being. And when it does so, from this touch relation, this contingent relation, a new kind of ripple arises from the contingent stimulus, from the fact of physical contact arises a new kind of information a formation within the circumference zone. Now, every cell therefore that comes into contingent relation with another one has two characteristic motions within itself. One is absolute, and in relation to this every being is omniscient, and the other one is contingent, and in relation to this one, the contingent one, everybody's knowledge is relative to the contingent stimulus situation. Now, when two mono cells come together and strike each other in the contingent relation, they introduce a finite motion to each other, which is quite different from the absolute motion of the infinite, because this finite motion is superstressed. Out of the totality of absolute motions, there has been selected by the movement of one of these mother cells a particular direction. Now this particular direction is simply one of the infinite number of directions in the absolute, and therefore is quite valid as a movement, because it is simply an already pre-existing movement within the Absolute, which at the level of the Absolute is absolutely right, but which in the selection of this direction and its insertion into the particular active zone we call the temporal process, has factually supersessed a given direction and now proceeds to impose this particularized direction and its effect on another being in the contingent relation. We immediately see that if a particular being distorts its form and because it is sentient power it can do so and we see in fact that an amoeba distorts its form when it is pursuing its food if a particular being of a particular form comes into contingent relation with another being, it imposes on that other being a photograph, that is, a characteristic motion, of itself. And this contingent pattern, this particularized pattern, onto being that has modified itself, is now impressed onto the other being as a superstress. Now all the motion possibilities of time are already simultaneously co-present in the absolute motion, and yet this absolute motion has all these possibilities exactly equally stressed, and therefore not expressed, not pressed outwards into temporal manifestation. But when a particular one of these cells distorts itself, and makes itself into a triangle, and then presses upon its neighbor, it imposes a picture of triangularity upon its neighbor. This is the root of the educational system. You take a form of one order, and you introduce it to a being that has not got that form supersessed. And yet the form you are introducing into it is already in it, in a non-superstressed state. It could not respond to the incoming stimulus formally unless it had within itself already this form so that the temporal stimulus merely makes us conscious of some of the possibilities of our own being. Now let's see how this progressively adds up to the appearance of a Shakespeare or a Mozart or a Goethe. <clears throat> we can see immediately that if we place a given being in an environment surrounded by triangles, and all these triangles proceed to stimulate this being, it will become full of triangles. It will develop an ability to respond to a triangular situation. It will be very clever at responding to triangles. If we now lift this being experimentally out of the field of triangles, and place it in the field of squares, then we find that it will have to learn by accepting the square stimuli, how to adapt itself to the squares, because the angles in the squares are not the same as the angles in the triangles. So it will have to go through a conditioning process of adjustment to the square stimuli. But when it has gone through this, it will then have triangles and squares within itself. Now a being that has triangles and squares, is superior to a being that has only either squares or triangles, superior in response ability. If therefore we mention a particular portion of protoplasm, living substance, being pushed through many experiences over a long period of time, some square, triangular, crescent shape, pentagonal and so on, whatever the shape of the stimuli, If it stays in the environment long enough to acquire the capacity for dealing with that form of stimulus, then it is raising its response ability. If we therefore push it through a sufficient number of environmental stimulus situations to cover all the stimuli possible to present to it in the time process, then that being will have optimal response. For instance, if we take a terrestrial being with the atmosphere of the Earth with a certain percentage of oxygen and various other gases in it, when we have developed the power to live by breathing this atmosphere, it does not follow that we can go on to the planet Venus and immediately start breathing. There, the situation is slightly different. I and mean, we we'll would find the temperature is a bit high and the content of the atmosphere is not quite what it is on Earth, and we'd have to acquire the art of breathing Venusian air. If we did so, we'd have greater survival capacity than a being who could only breathe on either Venus or the Earth. If we then consider the meaning of sexuality, that is a cutting portions of the protoplasm off the parent protoplasm and throwing them forward into the future we can see that all the experiences which are enclosed into a given piece of protoplasm are also within the piece of protoplasm which has been projected forward as a child. Now the purpose of sexuality is a return to a unity that is destroyed in the act of dividing the being. This is the meaning of the sect, the sectioning. If we represent the Adam or man prior to the polarization, we could represent him as a sphere on the plane surface as a circle. Now, this circle would be sufficient to itself, but it would have no value unless we introduced duality into it, because value presupposes difference. And so, in the Genesis myth, and in certain other myths in other religions, this man and woman are separated that is the protoplasm, splits into two halves. One is male and the other is female only in so far as one of them is slightly more active and the other slightly more passive. Now, when these two beings are separated, a definite amount of energy is required to separate them. And this imposes a strain on the field. We must remember that this organism, this monocell that splits, is simply a modality of the field energy. So that when we split an amoeba, split a monocell, we have used a definite amount of field energy in order to separate them. And to every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, and therefore the field must be trying to bring them back together again to reassert their original unity. Now, it would be of no biological use in the gaining of powers of adaptability, responsibility, if they split halves, went to, into an identical environment, and had exactly the same experience, when they came back together again, and fused, they would be no wiser than they were the first time. What we find by the law of the inequality finite, is that the environment differs. By say law of cool, and then draw the section of the pool showing its depth. Perhaps at the end of this pool the water is shallow, and in the middle it is deep. Now imagine that a cell is dividing itself, and thus multiplying, and some of them are going into deep water, and some of them are going into shallow water. Now in these two different environments, they are acquiring different formal characteristics in the different stimulus situations. Consequently, the one that has gained adaptability in the shallow water thing, and the one that has gained adaptability in the deep water situation, when they come together again and fuse, they have, in fact, added characters to each other in the fusion. Let's see how this happens. We draw a circle, we divide it vertically down the middle, and we say, imagine this half-separate, A and B, B goes to the sinister side and A to the dexter side. They stay apart for some time and they come back together again and A has had experiences in an environment X and B has had experiences in an environment Y. Now they come together and they join on the median line. Both halves have AX characteristics, BY characteristics. And now, when they separate the next and they divide at right angles to the original division. And they now separate vertically, not to right and left, but down and down. And the two halves now show characteristics of both X and Y. A, B. Now, in exactly the same time, these two beings have been having this experience and by splitting in two, they have saved time. They've had the same experience time but the quality, the form of the experience differs in the same time. So they have used the same time to have different experiences. So in splitting they have done something they have had experiences in half the time that they would have had to acquire all that information if they had remained as one egg. So the basic idea in splitting is to fulfill all the experiential possibilities of the universe and then coming together again to fuse this information derived from all these various environments and put it together in a new pattern and this pattern gives the power to respond in a large number of ways to different types of environment. Now let's see why these beings should in fact bother to acquire a capacity for responding to a variety of environments. Why should they bother to do Well, there are two basic things about it. One is for survival, and the other is for interest, for the actual joy in the function. And these two aspects are equally important, because we only survive in order to enjoy. And the purpose of the enjoyment cannot be fulfilled without surviving you know what it's doing. It. Let's turn for a moment to the myth of the fall. This occurs in many religions, the idea that there has been a fall and that this fall has endangered life. We find that uh, the word evil is the reverse of the word the Evil is anti-living. Evil is another word for that which stops the life process. Now, when it says a fall has occurred in all these great myths, it means that today, at whatever level historically we are considering, the men who are talking about the fall are very, very conscious of their impotence. They are conscious that they are weaker than they want to be. And there is an inference from it. He is a being, and he is saying to himself, I am weaker than I want to be. And from this we can logically infer certain things. A being knows only the modifications of its own substance, and it cannot know other than these modifications. If there are any other beings beyond it, it cannot know of these beings except insofar far as those beings strike upon its own sensorium and it then responds to this assumed stimulus, and it is still knowing only the modifications of its own substance. The reason it assumes there is another source for its experience than its own will is simply because it has no control over certain aspects of its own response. From the center of the being may arise a will to do something and when this inner impulse is felt to rise up and then move towards expression there is no feeling whatever that there is another being involved the energy arises in the center and moves to the perimeter and expresses itself in action. But when action occurs which has not been originated in the center of the being then the being must assume some other center to account for the change in its own being. And this assumed other center is called the stimulus soul. So to back to my own center I feel perhaps in my eyes closed, I do not need to posit the existence of other beings when I am doing something deliberately. I am into certain act, I will open my hand, I will close it. It corresponds with it. Now, if I start moving my hand through the air at my will, and I'm not bothering to think what I'm doing other than this, I'm moving my hand through the air without thinking, and I suddenly hit myself on the knee and lends my knee, and the pencil hitting the knee. From the point of view of the knee, the pencil is external. The hand holding it is connected to an arm, which is connected to a body which is connected to the knee. But if I was not, at the time, considering I have a knee somewhere, when I struck down with the pencil, if I hit myself on the knee, like a baby sometimes does, the knee interprets this as an external stimulus as an external stimulus relative to the knee, not to the whole organism. So I find that by bending my body over I can stimulate myself as if from outside. This is a serpent with his tail in his mouth again. But when I do this I impose on myself the concept of limitation. If I start to close my hand my fingers are free, and as I bend them, I find they're beginning to press on each other. This is a restriction. I close it further, my fingers press into the palm. I grip it to make a fist. I grip very hard, now I'm really contradicting myself. I am willing to contract, but my fist is not getting smaller. There's a certain limiting factor there. This is a basic experience. I'm trying to do something to contract on a center in the middle of my fist but my hand is not getting smaller. This is a realisation of impotence. I am trying to do something, and I cannot do it. This gives me a strong consciousness that somehow something has gone wrong. I should be able to fulfil my will absolutely. And yet here is a strange situation where I am contracting my fingers together, pressing them into my palm, and trying to reduce it to nothing, and all I'm reducing it to is the size of a fist. I can feel the energy contracted into it. I know that in principle I should be able to press all the energy of this fist down to an infinitesimally small point and make it disappear. And yet somehow the hand which has become fist is still there. And this is a realization of my impotence. And this is the root of our belief that there have been a fall. Now how can we believe this unless there has been a fall? Because we cannot believe it unless there has been a form. This means to say we have a concept here of a power which is absolutely infinite plus the experience of a power that is finite. Now, because this being, this circumscribed cell, is in fact circumscribed, a finite amount of power is within it, and in the contingent relation with another cell. This finite power at the level of the contingent contact can only express itself finite. And yet, this circumscribed zone is simply a zone of the field of the infinite sentient power, which has been circumscribed by the simple process of this field deliberately contracting onto a center to make that zone. So we have a transcendent awareness, transcendent of the circumscribing line, that we are, in fact, infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, and yet factually at the circumscribed level we are far from infinitely powerful and wise. These are the two things. When they are co-presented in consciousness, we then have the root of the doctrine of the four. We realize that we have insufficient power to fulfill our will and therefore we think how can we remove the limiting factors upon our power we have the will to power expressed consciously only when we become aware of a limitation the free propagation of spiritual power in infinity has no awareness of limitation because it has not yet made a limit but as soon as it makes a limit a circumscibly zone then it becomes aware of a limiting factor then by pressing in upon it this sentient power becomes identified with the zone and then it begins to believe that it is a finite being. It forgets that it is a modality of the infinite sentient power field and it begins to think of itself as a formed finite being within space. When it does so and the identification is complete, the fall is complete. The fall is simply the process whereby Consciousness is dominated by the concept of finite existence. Now, when this zone has, in fact, identified itself with its finity, and is therefore terribly restricted by its own definitions, and yet dwelling through it, uh, all the absolute motion of the field, reminding it that one's things were not like they are, then the feeling that one has fallen is done. And there's a great urge to get out of this fall, to reverse the fall, to rediscover this path. And it is at this point that we see that the being that is conscious of its deficiencies is motivated by its awareness of its deficiencies to go into various fields of experience. It finds itself, in fact, surrounded with a lot of other beings in the same state, and they're all pursuing path. Now, whenever two beings strike together in the contingent relation, they modify each other with particular stimuli, and these particular stimuli cause by resonance a super stressing on the absolute motion which is going through each zone. And in the process of the informing of each of these cells, we find a general elevation of response ability. When we look at the thing formally, that's intellectually, we say this raising of the formal content, this making more complex of the falling content, is the raising of Cain. As this being is circumscribed, in the contingent relation, every stimulus that it gets convicts it of having form. So that as long as it is in a contingent relation, dependent on the physical contact with another being, it feels its dependency upon the stimulus of another being, and therefore it feels impotent. Because each one of them, deeply in its essential field, knows that it should not need this external contingent stimulus situation in order to fulfill its own will. It therefore directs itself through the field from its own point of view, in search of further characterization, further information, to give it greater and greater control, and to reverse the effect of this fall. In other words, it is struggling to overcome inner impotence, and to return to the omnipotence it feels in the field that it essentially has. Now, each one of these circles goes through space and in going to, coming into continued relation with another one, it becomes progressively informed. But when there are several such beings, and they've had a lot of different experiences, and they are all pressing on one being, that being stands in a wonderful position, either being destroyed or evaluated. If the order of incoming stimuli is such, that it cannot assimilate them and pattern them properly, it becomes confused. And it tries to defend itself against the confusion. And this is the origin of having children. In order to protect itself against the possibility of confusion, the possibility of not attaining the aim of omnipotence, it deliberately isolates a zone of itself, a zone of its own protoplasm, but it surrounds this with a very strong barrier of energy and this deposits a membrane and it says I will keep this zone and I will protect this zone from the confusion of the large number of stimuli coming at me. And this protected zone is what we call the sex cells in the body. It is a group of cells, which are simply the subdivisions of a zone of protoplasm that has been surrounded by a protective wall, and encapsulated to stop the possibility of the whole being becoming confused, disorientated, and failing to reach omnipotence, failing to reverse the So when it surrounds this zone, it protects that zone in a large degree from the effects of the confusion. And from this zone, it will throw out the elements that we call sex cells. And they will then develop in a new environment, and they will have a relatively fresh start at solving the problem at the search for omnipotence. But these cells, the sex cells within the body, unfortunately cannot be protected absolutely Because, factually, they too are modalities of the field. They too are influenced by the characteristic motions in some degree of the body in which those sex cells have been separated. So although a growing child is defended in many ways from the heredity of its mother and father, it is not absolutely defended. The things that are in it from the characteristics of the mother and father are rendered very weak by the insulating envelope of energy written, but they are not made totally secure so that there remains inside the sex cells a patterning from the mother and father again I draw it with a light grey line to represent that this patterning is not superstitious now this patterning is the patterning that we call in the child, in the mother, the prenatal engram pattern. It is the samskara pattern of the Hindu philosophers. It is the form of the stimulus situation that acted upon the being, we will now call the parent protoplasm, although in fact it is the same protoplasm, (coughs) that acted upon the parent protoplasm, was superstressed in the parent protoplasm, but was shielded from the supersess, so that only a faint shadow of that inner form appears in the child. So the child in utero is actually going through a series of stages, almost as if it were in a dream, and it moves about in utero within its amniotic sac, and it changes its position, suggests itself to the needs of its inner life. And it dreams through the pattern of the experiences of the ancestors. Now, providing the external stimulus situation is not such as to re-stimulate or supersess any of these forms. When the child is excluded and born in the world separately from the parents, it has been given birth to, them, the pattern of the experience of the parents remains like a light gray line. It does not express itself in physical action. But if the external stimulus situation is such that it has a pattern correspondent with the one on the inside of this developing cell, then the external stimulus reactivates that constituent motion from the parent bodies and now this child becomes aware that it has a capacity for reaction like his mother and father. Now it is this that constitutes what we call genius. If a given being has had many many experiences and has been to many many environments and has managed to attain a degree of integration and has not been overthrown, disorientated, and confused by the multitude of stimuli. It has now patterned itself in a certain way, and it may, by good fortune, which means, of course, by a strong unity of will, choose for itself a mate that is another cell, which has also got itself patterned in a very good way, and then the two patterns fuse together, and the resultant child of this now has a highly complex response ability. It is able to respond in special ways because of the fusion of the patterns of the experiences of the parents. Now, if we consider this child as a new thing, we will say, how clever this child is, its own individual efforts. By these efforts, it is very, very clever. But if we remember that this child is simply a portion of the protoplasm of its mother and father and grandmother and grandfather backwards, and we know that there is nothing in this child other than the absolute motion, which is the same in all beings, and the conditioning information from the contingent situation and stimulus in the environment. If we remember this fact, then this child isn't clever at all as a separate entity. It is merely the recipient of all the efforts of all its predecessors. And yet, in a very peculiar way, it is still clever. Because that piece of protoplasm which has become that child is the very piece of protoplasm that was in the parent body undergoing those experiences and making those efforts. Now we've said before if there are a pair of opposites we must assert or deny both. And here we are with a pair of opposites. The idea of personal merit and the idea of no personal merit. They are both equally valid or equally invalid. We have to assert both. Wherever there is a talent, we know that that talent in that being is in that being and not another being, because the particular being under consideration is a portion of the protoplasm of the parent being which was striving in that direction. And consequently, in a very real sense, it is that same being. Now, supposing from generation to generation, certain lines into marry and produce children and each one of these makes quite sure that she always marries a suitable partner with the right idea. But we may agree about the idea. Let's take it the idea of the Messiah. The necessity for a man who can embody in himself omnipotence and omniscience. This is the ideal of every man. And in a certain line, in certain families, They're so tremendously interested in this, they deliberately try to bring their bodies into conformity with the idea, and they deliberately expose themselves to experiential situations such that their own protoplasm is conditioned and gains ability to respond in a highly complex environmental stimulus situation. Now it does this for generation after generation, and meanwhile, the patterning of that experience is building up to a super-pattern which finally results in the appearance of a child which has internally got a cosmic form, a microcosmic form identical with the macrocosmic form. This is a being who has total responsibility. And this means he has total self-control. To have total responsibility means the ability to modify one's being regardless of the nature of the stimulus presented. And this ability to modify one's being regardless of the stimulus is the same thing as omnipotence. We know that certain bacteria have done very cunning things. Um, It used to be thought, not very many years ago, that if you boiled water you would kill bacteria in it. experiments of the last 20-odd years, have shown that some bacteria are very canny. As soon as you start boiling them, they make a little sphere which they extrude, and they change their form, and they just stay in that form. And when you finish boiling them, perhaps, perhaps three or four hours or more, and the water goes cool again, then they simply change their form back into the original form and carry on as before. And this is a very high degree of adaptability. Unfortunately, they have confined themselves to this one particular mode of self-defence. It might be that these beings developed this capacity during volcanic periods and uh, in places where hot water would suddenly squirt out of the ground, their self-preservation need led to them developing this kind of adaptability. But the fact that this can happen, that there can be a life form that can survive boiling in this way, points to the possibility of an absolute adaptability of a life form. And this is the ideal of the Messiah. That is, of the being who represents, who incarnates, the capacity for total response in any conceivable situation. Now, it depends entirely on the growth of awareness of the pattern of possibilities within the being that this absolute adaptability shall be gained. We know that every being has this potentially, as far as time is concerned. We know that as far as eternity is concerned, it has it absolutely. But in eternity, this capacity which is absolute and omniscient and omnipotent is in no sense focused, is not individualized, and therefore it is of no use to us if it remains merely in the absolute potential while we are impacting the time process. Somehow we have to import into the time process by supersessing these absolute possibilities, whatever there is of responsibility, and in order to do this we have to expose ourselves in a temporal situation to those orders of stimuli that can conjure up in our consciousness from the absolute level those means of self-modification that lead to absolute adaptability. When we consider that human protoplasm has simply become the human race by dividing itself, and dividing itself, and dividing itself, so if we cover the paper with lots of little circles, and we can say this is the English circle, the German circle, the French, the Italian, the Moroccan and so on, the Chinese, the Indian, the Negroid, all these different circles are fundamentally human protoplasm. They have the same number of chromosomes, showing their common origin. They have undergone various modifications by exposure to different environments. They have will to expose themselves in this way. And if, when they have gained the total response spread over the whole human race, if then they bring these responses which they have gained from everywhere, and they intermarry all these different experiences, in the appropriate order, they will produce a being of total responsibility. This is why, in the myth of the Messiah, this Messiah, when he arrives, must be all guys. He's a rainbow man. He's a spotted leopard. He's a pantherian. He's all animals. He is no race. He is no creed. He is all races. He is all creeds, because he must have within himself the totality of all possibilities incarnated and under the dominion of his own consciousness and will. Shorter, we can say that wherever there is a talent in any individual today, we can say of that talent, as the rabbis say about the fruit, the fruit that we eat is from trees planted by people who never knew us. And yet here is the strange fact that every individual with a talent now living has got that talent by personal effort his personal effort. But he must not conceive that he is as small as the being that he is now focused on. The child that develops into a man of talent he is not simply the whole man who has striven for that talent. He is, if you like, the end of a growing finger approach person. And as he goes backwards to his parents, grandparents, and so on, he is really dealing with the same person in so far as that will to that particular talent has been frequently striven for by the same person over successions of generations. Um, can these forms already in the and in the absolute be supersperson individual other than by an experience of situation? Say from the principles? They can be, yes. But I'm observing a peculiar thing about If we take the absolute, it is not a potential, it is an actuality. The motion of the absolute is not a potential motion, it is an actual motion. It is only apparently potential from the point of view of a temporal being, when the temporal being has not got the power to use it. He calls it potential because he hasn't got it. It is potential to him, but to the absolute it is not potential, it is actual. Now this absolute is sentient power and it can precipitate from its absoluteness a center of perfect responsibility by sheer immediacy. It can, in other words, precipitate a messiah. It can precipitate an intelligent being of total response from the whole field. But, although it can do this, it does not always do it. And it does not always do it for a very simple reason. Because of its absoluteness, it is of itself containing all conceivable possibilities. And these possibilities are arranged in a hierarchy of parts. Now, when this egg, this monocle, divides into two, it has broken its primary I amness, its egocentricity, if you like, into two parts and these two parts are now equally egotistic with the first part and when these two divide again each part from the result of the is equally egotistic with its predecessors simply because it is the predecessors divided and consequently as we pluralize the absolute by creating zones of concentration we are also pluralizing egotism and this means to say that there must be the same will to power in each finite that there is in the infinite source from which they came. Because the infinite has a deep will to rule all things, so there must be a deep will in each finite being to rule all things. And therefore there is a very, very great need in all of the finites to be contradicted, so that no given finite shall in fact rule by its will, to absolute power, over all the other finites. If any one of these finites should succeed in gaining absolute power, it could then dictate to all the other finites, if they had not gained it. And to make this an impossibility, the field sets up one such being of absolute power, And then proceeds to remove this being so that the other being has had a demonstration of what not to do. If we take the Christian messianic story, we see that a man who comes and is declared to be God is crucified. What is the meaning of it? Here is God coming on earth, and he could be the God of any great religion, but he incarnates himself on the earth and he declares himself as Christ declared himself, I am one with that omnipotent father, and at the raising of Lazarus where he raise, raises the dead he gives a performance that shows he has command over life and death and then no sooner has he demonstrated this capacity in the time process to avoid the complete subordination of every other finite being to the image of this man that would have paralyzed him completely if it had remained then he crucified it, because the great law is, thou shalt not have a visible God which is omnipotent. Supposing for a moment Christ had said, when they put him on the cross, to the challenge, come down off the cross if you are the son of God, supposing he'd come down, supposing he'd just floated down, leaving the nails, that man. Eh? do you think the rabbis are anybody else would have dared to text him? Do you think anybody would have dared to move without consulting him first? They wouldn't. And therefore there would have been a finite being in the time process with a continuous pilgrimage to this point. (laughs) Now, it is not from the centre of our feeling what we really think is a good thing. We do need the demonstration of the possibility of incarnating omnipotence, of absolute adaptability, absolute responsibility, But we don't need him around too long. Because we too want to move in the same direction. The rule we want to see is that if ever God dares to incarnate, he had better get crucified. Because if he doesn't, he is going to paralyze the free individual will of every other being. And therefore there is uh, here an indicator for any finite being who, in the pursuit of his own development of power, should aim at a position of power so great that he can dictate to the rest of the human race, the fetchy figure of a Mussolini or Hitler or a Stalin is nothing compared with the possibilities that could be expressed. But if any individual finite being did, in fact, impose on the rest of the human race so that they could not move without consulting him, then the whole purpose of the evolution of plurality would have been defeated. So that when we are moving towards the development of our powers, we should always remember this, that whatever field we are in, where we become optimal in our response, whether the brain the piccolo or the whatever they do play, whatever this is, at the top level of this performance, this man is a messiah for this activity. And it is his duty to get himself crucified in that department, lest he in fact paralyzes all the other feelings. Does <laughs> <laughs> the original way like, resist the split uh, If you remember that the energy expended in the split is equal, by the field in response to the reaction of the field, there must be a resistance, equivalent to the amount of energy expended in the split. As if we were to say, when we stress the field to create a finite point, we have strained on the surrounding field. So if we, first of all, stress the field to make a finite zone, that's a single cell, we have strained all the field around it. And this strain is demanding the destruction of the speed. And therefore we part the egg. The egg for a moment returns at the moment of splitting to its sense of transcendence. It has escaped the limiting factor of individuation. But as soon as it has escaped it, like the pendulum, flies past the medial point. It flies too far away and it now compresses the field on the sides and it strains the centre. We then respond by dragging back together again the seven halves. And so there is an oscillation between the joining and severing of these halves. But the halves like it. We have to be careful about terms. Like means similarity. Psychologically, the state of liking is present. Wherever one being is like another being, and wherever a being has inside himself. <coughs> An energy form like that of an external stimulus, then it lights it. But the original egg having no identity, having nothing in fact, is being sort of done to by the field. The original egg has identity because it is circumspect. And it it is itself the field condensed, and is therefore self doing. You get this in the Bhagavad Gita, where it says that the killer and the killing and the kill are all the same. And this is a bit of Samson, the eater, and the meat, the strength and the sweetness. It is all the absolute which is playing about with itself. It is the Lila and the gods, the sport. Where this field is playing about and producing these fanated zones, and then dissolving them when they go beyond the term of its purpose. This is the picture I see from the pilot game. This is the picture as seen from both ends simultaneously. Because this question of the game of the sport and the play of power happens to be an absolute fact. And therefore from the point of view of the absolute, it is still a game. From the point of view of a finite human being within the game, the game can be rough. As in a stealth. Or it can be easy as if you are watching from a sound. That it is still a game. To the finite, an absolute game doesn't make sense. To the finite, it makes sense when the finite can discover within itself that its essential being is no more than a modality of this absolute game. This again this question of the degree of awareness inside an individual. You know very well that if you like to wiggle your first finger and call that a game, you can feel a certain sensation of pleasure in the very finger that you move it in a certain way. And simultaneously, you can find a nerve ending somewhere in your body that you could tickle, and the cells in that place will like it, and you would like it, simultaneously. Now, if you are with your consciousness, this is equivalent <coughs> to an absolute relative to you. Your consciousness relative to a cell that you are tickling is have the absolute consciousness, relative to you, and therefore you can do it from both ends. From the absolute end, you are stretching that cell because you love the sensation, and that cell is enjoying the being stretched from its own finite viewpoint. Now, if you scratch in such a way that the cell doesn't like it, you don't like it. And if you persist in doing it, you destroy the cell. And when you have destroyed the self, you have felt the pain and the deception of yourself. But this doesn't mean that you necessarily stop, because you might actually be enjoying the information that arises in consciousness from the deceptive activity. Uh, this is very closely related to the problem of psalmism and music. Enjoyment is not necessarily confined to a certain time of pleasure-stimulation, because enjoyment can arise from the actual perception of the formal meaning of the situation independently of the sensation of pleasure or pain. Certainly, you did say, and I'm sure it must be right, that the genius was in fact the last in the line of uh, people moving towards that end. Yeah. um, Historically this doesn't always seem to be the case. And this fact uh, well there are quite a number of geniuses who appear to be a sort of product out of the blue that there appeared to be no connection in their family history, <coughs> the music or leadership or or Well, first of all here we have to distinguish very carefully between Uh, careless looking at history and deep looking at it. You take a a boy like Mozart we know in fact that he was a genius and his father was not a genius. His father expended a terrific amount of energy on him. And this meant that there was in the father an ambition a formative power in the father to become what he wanted the son to become. And he treated this son as if it were his own perturbation which it was so that the father was fulfilling himself of the sun, And well, we find say, in, say, Renaissance Italy that you cannot abstract a man like Michelangelo and say, here is a man self-generated out of nothing because in actual fact the whole environment was conspiring together and everybody was undergoing this experience of striving for perfection form. Now we've said that absolutely all is sentient power. We said that the sentient power of the absolute can precipitate a messiah or a genius immediately. And if it does so, it has produced an act which is merely exactly the same thing that appears in the temporal process serially, only now, instead of serializing like the very one after the other European tradition. it has simply put all these stages together in one place, going from the absolute into the temporal relative by compression that every stage is still there even when the genius apparently in the eye superficially examined has come out of nothing. and if in fact we examine this genius and the power from which he derives we find always a very deep searching has gone on even if without success and that this person simply crystallizes the yearning of that land Isn't without success here then, very sort of important, really, like millions of ancestors who struggle without success. Mm-hmm. Therefore, Without success is part of the final project of success, isn't it, really? Yeah. Well, our we, uh, word really yearning doesn't quite express clearly the idea that we want. The German Seinsort does. Seinsort is a word that's translated yearning, but it's made out to see and to seek. To see, to seek. You see in your mind a possibility. You seek it with your energy. For generations you see this possibility, and you seek it, and you don't get it, but you keep seeking. Now, always seeking, always striving inside, which may never show any evidence, whatever, of genius, if it is persisted in from generation to generation all this seeing and seeking of this possibility results at a certain point in a precipitation of precisely that capacity you might remember the novel of Bellis, which is called The Hamptons You Wonder about a little infant prodigy who is born to a man who in fact was striving to make a cricketer this man was aiming to bowl properly and he was thinking cricket, cricket, cricket all the time. And he was aiming accurately. And he wasn't defining too well what he was doing. Because he thought he was defining within the field of cricket. But in fact the whole of his concentration wasn't on cricket. It was on hitting the wicked. So that when this child was born to him, this child had a mind that went from where it was to a point. And so whenever it looked at it, hit it. And so we see this interesting little picture of this infant prodigy sitting on the volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica except one which he's reading. And when he's read through that once he's committed it to memory. And he puts that volume under he takes the next one right, <laughs> And he works through them all until they've all been read. And then this little monster of a child <laughs> with a stacked brain begins to speak. And straight away everybody becomes terrified. In this particular story, which is worth reading, because Berrison is seriously interested in this problem. A minister of the gospel is so terrified that the genius of this child will overthrow his theological position that he gets a little boy to go for a walk with him and he finds a nice little palm in the field and he pushes the boy in the palm and he holds him under his walking seat to protect God. <laughs> <laughs> Read the Hampton to wonder in and see how Belisfred has seriously considered this problem. That if you concentrate, you will get there. And if you get there, look out. Because somebody will consider that you are doing God no service by daring to be manifest. <coughs> uh, another sort of one genius very often doesn't seem to have any character. I don't know why. why? When he does, they very seldom a genius in their own turn. Why, why is this? this? One would have thought a genius would have birth perhaps to a super genius. <coughs> the right should be worse than the bar. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Well, the reason is very, very simple. When we are pursuing an end, we use energy. If we're using energy to pursue end A, we are not using it for end B. So if we get a genius, we get the evidence that along a long series of generations a certain action has been targeted for. And when that genius arises, he is the embodiment, the fulfilment of that aim. And all the energy of that life has now been incarnated in him. There isn't any left for being anything else, so that when he has a child, the child is no good. So that you can't have a continuous series of geniuses you can have a continuous series of mediocrity, including, I say, like say, right, that Tagore family, painters and poets and so on, artists. And these people are very clever, but they're not all geniuses. You cannot go on producing a genius out of a genius, because you cannot, in fact, overcome the inertia of the direction. A genius is the ultimate end of a long series of strivings for many generations. And when he arrives, that is the end of that particular effort, and a new effort has been made, and you cannot take the full energy of that genius in another being, and in one generation, point in another direction. Again, it will take time, and the development of experience, and the building up of new patterns, for a new genius in another field can arise. Listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.